Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set we have, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, and we bring our years to end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Those are the first 11 verses of Psalm 90, which along with Psalm 87 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, March the 26th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are continuing our look at um, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 13, verses 1 to 11 today, in the Gospel according to John, chapter 8, verses 47 to 59, and in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 6, verses 12 to 23. The Lord's now going to move from from making a direct complaint against the people to an illustration of that. He says to Jeremiah, go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. The loincloth would have been underwear, essentially. It would be the the small garment that (coughs) goes next to the skin. Covered the private parts. <clears throat> so I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. He didn't dip it in water. In other words, he didn't uh, pre shrink it. He didn't do anything with it except for put it around him so it's pure, unadulterated as it goes around his waist. And then the Lord, word of the Lord came to me a second time Take the loincloth you've bought, which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So, so he is sent to the river in Babylon to hide this linen loincloth. So I went and hid it in the Euphrates, by the Euphrates, as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from a place where I had hidden it. And behold, the the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Well, of course it was. And what what this illustration is, is is to, to go on to say he will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. They're going to have to be brought low because their pride is so great. They're going to have to be brought very low in order to uh, overcome this and to get them back on the right track. The evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as a loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen. So what the illustration is intended to show is, is what God's intention was for the people, that he would have them cling to him as a loincloth clings to the waist of a man, that that was the intention, and it was what happened all those years in the wilderness. And it, it's the, one of the big points in the book of um, 
Hosea is that God's going to take them back to the wilderness in order to restore this clinging relationship. And that's the point of the, the manna being the daily bread. They could trust him, and they were learning day by day to trust God for what he would provide for them. And they were learning to trust him to be with them in all the places that he led them in the wilderness. And so this clinging was God's intention. But the problem is, is that they went astray. They didn't want to cling to him. They wouldn't listen to him, he says. So they went astray. And so now what he's doing is he's showing them what the punishment will be. He's going to take these people and he's going to, who have this, this, um, this pure linen kind of look to them. That's what they were intended to be. But now what they've done by following after these other gods is they have spoiled themselves. They are no longer good for the purpose for which he intended, which was to be a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But because of their sins and because their their unwillingness to repent, then they're going to go, well, to Babylon, where the Euphrates is. And they're going to be left there for a long season of time in order that their pride will be broken and they will see that they truly are good for nothing. And, and so they're not even going to be fully abashed in the uh, destruction of the land. That's not even going to be enough, is what God's saying. It, it, they're going to have to come out of, they're going to have to lose the land, they're going to have to be gone from the land for a longer season of time than any of them would like to believe because they have to be purified of their sins in order that they can fulfill the purposes God has for his people. And sometimes God has to do that to the church. Sometimes he has to do that in, in our own lives, and here, that's exactly what he's saying is, is that you took this really, this pure garment, and then you've ruined it. But, but it's what has to happen in order that it'll be useful again. And in the same way that the generation who came into the wilderness, came out of Egypt, were not allowed to enter the land, so will be true of this generation who will spend 70 years in Babylon. And so that generation won't come back. He has to raise up an entirely new generation in order to purify his people to an extent where they can come back and be the people that he intended for them to be. In the um, gospel lesson today, Jesus is continuing to discuss and argue, essentially, with the people. And remember yesterday, they claimed to be children of Abraham and then that God was their father. And, and Jesus, in both instances, said, if, if Abraham were your father, then you would do the things Abraham did, but you're not. And if God were your father, then you would love me and you would accept my words. So he, he has disabused them of the notion that they were either Abraham's children or God's children. And so then he finishes that with whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you're not of God. And I spoke into that whole issue that, that I've heard racist arguments based in these statements right here, and it's clearly not what's going on at all. But I've heard racist arguments from two different groups of people, from white supremacists and black supremacists. They'll make these claims that these statements mean that the people to whom Jesus is speaking are not truly Israel. There's some other mixed group of people who are more like the sons of Canaan, the grandson of Noah, whose line was cursed. And so then they claim, based on I don't know what, that, <laughs> that either 
they're they're different people that align with whatever my physical characteristics are. They're either black or they're white. No, that's not true. That is not what is being said here at all. So the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Well, that's the worst ad hominem attack I think I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it's just completely out of the blue, right? I mean, they've already made the comment to him before. We were not born out of sexual immorality, which is casting aspersions on his birth, because the rumor would have been that somebody else was the father, not Joseph. So now they're saying you're a Samaritan and have a demon, which in the Samaritan thing tells us that they must have known about Jesus going to Samaria and the mission that happened there in Samaria. And, and, he's, and they're saying, you, you're not even a Jew. You're aligned with those people, those Samaritans out there, and that you have a demon. And remember, that's one of the things that they say against him, and it's one of the things that provokes the strongest rebuke Jesus ever gives, really, is, is when he talks about, you've ascribed the works of the Holy Spirit to the devil, and that's the unforgivable sin. And so here they come at him with that thing. And so this, you have a demon, is intending to suggest the very same thing, that you drive out Satan by Satan himself, that you're doing these works through a demonic power, not a Holy Spirit. And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. It's interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't say, I'm not a Samaritan either. No, he didn't align himself in that way. Yet I, I don't seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he's the judge. So the one who is seeking Jesus's glorification is the Father, and he is the judge of all things. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And you can imagine the, the look on their faces when Jesus said that if you, do, if you keep my words, you will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. <laughs> Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? The answer to that is, mm-hmm, yep. And it, but it's a similar question, right? I mean, it's this question you've kind of seen before. It's a question that was raised by the Samaritan woman at the well, but not in the same way. She said, are you greater than our father Jacob? which is saying we're the true Israel because Jacob became Israel, right? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Because Jesus had promised her water flowing. So, so they look to Jacob as their father in that sense because he gave them that well. And here they're looking to Abraham and saying he's their father and saying, are you greater than him? And in both cases, the answer is yes, he is. <laughs> and he's saying it as well, and he's going to say it. And, and then they said, and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. I'm not making myself out to be anything. That's up to you to decide. I know who I am, and my Father knows who I am. You have to decide who I am. I'm not glorifying myself or making myself out to be anything other than what you see. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. So he's clearly making a claim here that he is a unique son of God the Father. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I didn't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Those two things are proof, right? So I do know him, and I keep his word. And, and remember the complaint God brought yesterday in the Jeremiah passage, which was that you don't do the things that I command you, and you don't listen to my voice. So Jesus says that I'm the one who does. 
I'm the only one who does. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So your father Abraham, my father, God. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? I mean, what in the world? Who are you claiming to be? This is the silliest conversation we've ever had. You're claiming to be to have been before Abraham. Abraham saw you? Who must you be? Well, it's obvious who he must be. If Abraham saw his day and rejoiced, then there's only one option for who this is. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, and this is where it gets really offensive, Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. Ego a me. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. When he says, I am, in that context, it is clear to everybody that he's claiming equality with God because he used God's name. He used the name of Yahweh when he said that. And how do we know that that's how it was interpreted? The last sentence. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. There's only a limited number of circumstances in which you can pick up stones to stone somebody, and blasphemy is one of them. And so Jesus here clearly got their attention with the claim that he made there. They know exactly what he has said, and they also know ultimately that they have to make a decision, and they make their decision when they pick up the stones. Picking up the stones tells you exactly what they think about the claim Jesus just made, that it's blasphemy, period. End of sentence. There's no way other than that. Paul is trying to make the argument still that we need to get rid of sin and deal with sin in our lives in the same way that Jeremiah makes the the argument, in the same way that Jesus makes the argument. Paul's trying to do it with logic here, though. He says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you were not under law, but under grace. So... Paul's saying that, that you've been delivered from all of that. You died with Christ. That was his response yesterday. And in Christ's death and in your baptism, you died to sin, and you have been raised to life in Christ, which is to say you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a different kind of life now. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? I mean, is that license to sin because I have grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey? That's an extraordinary point and a powerful point. It's the truth, right? I mean, what we choose to obey will show us what our master is. And it's like you you show me what it is your desire more than anything else in the world. You show me your schedule for the week, and I'll tell you what it is that, that is your master. What is your summum bonum, your highest good? I can tell by the way you spend your time the way you spend your money, all those things. And so that's exactly what Paul's saying here. If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But Paul says, show me your life, and I'll tell you who your master is. 
But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves to righteousness. So you've accepted the yoke of Jesus. You've accepted the yoke of righteousness that's yours by grace. So you've already been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of grace. Now present yourselves to him and become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So there are a couple of television shows that I would point to to give that sort of that illustration. One of those shows is um, Breaking Bad, and the other is this show Ozark. And, and what happens in both of those is, is these people begin to compromise. They, they make a decision to compromise, thinking, okay, this is a solution to a problem that I have in my life. If I do this, then everything will be okay. And then what happens is that now they've become immersed because they've taken on different masters. In Breaking Bad, it had to do with, all right, now we've got to push product, we're going to make uh, meth and all that. And then on the, on the Ozark side, it becomes a slave to the drug cartels. But then they're constantly called to worse and worse and worse stuff. But he's got them under his thumb. In both cases, they look like they're the masters, but ultimately they're not. And so when Paul says that you made your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness needing to more lawlessness. Both those shows are perfect examples of how you can compromise and then just become compromised. And then there's no way out of that. There's no way out once you get into that. But Jesus provides the way out of that. You're no longer beholden to the world. You're no longer beholden to anyone You've been set free from that, and now you have one Father. And what Paul's offer here is to say that once that's happened in your life, then you need to become a a slave to him who is also Father. Become slaves to righteousness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have any responsibility there at all. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get now leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So Paul is, is not saying that justification and eternal life is everything. He's saying, no, no, no. You, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, a more righteous life, and its end, salvation, eternal life. So you can't have justification, you can't have salvation with only justification, only a confession, verbal confession or a baptism or whatever of Jesus. That's not enough. In Paul's words here, he says that the end, eternal life, is the end of sanctification, a life that's dedicated to obedience to God. And you've been set free, you've been justified And in that, you were set free from sin, but you were set free in order that you could now pursue justification or sanctification. And if you're not pursuing that, I'm not sure that the end is eternal life. Not sure at all. Those things are supposed to be coupled together. You've been justified, which means you've been set free from slavery in order that you can pursue a life of righteousness. And if you're not pursuing that, 
then there's something missing, and it's called the Holy Spirit. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And when he says that, he's wrapping up his argument that's based in Abraham and justification by faith. Because in the beginning of this argument, way back in chapter 4, he says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And what he's already said is, you can't do perfect works. So you've got to depend on grace. And so here he says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's completing the argument that begins with, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And then he's contrasting that back in uh, Romans 4 with the gift of grace, of justification and salvation by faith. But then we're set free in order that we can do the good works that he has appointed beforehand for us to walk in and to pursue righteousness without the fear of judgment.